everyone. The analysts are back again this week with round three of our discussion about the wildest and craziest election ever here on KCTS9.org, Vote 2016. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS9 political analyst, with C.R. Douglas, political analyst for Q13, and we are doing our analytical take on the politics of the moment. Today, we are going to talk about a whole list of things, the latest in the presidential race, including the fact that one of the candidates just visited our state. We're also going to dive into the latest on the governor and lieutenant governor races, the gender gap, and we'll take a look at two major initiatives on the ballot this election, the carbon tax and a proposed statewide minimum wage of $13.50 per hour. So looking ahead to the presidential debate tonight, Wednesday the 19th, CR. What do you make of this idea from Donald Trump that the candidates should be doing drug testing before they debate? I know Trump loves to do things to kind of throw Hillary Clinton off. But what is this idea to suggest to you? It's kind of stunty. Not a word, I admit. (laughs) Well, my first reaction was, you know, this was just kind of a, a spur of the moment thing. He threw out kind of a stream of consciousness moment from Donald Trump. But when you look at what else is going on in the campaign a day or two after he said it, I think it was actually more coordinated than I thought. You know, he was he was saying drug testing as though, you know, she looked pump up, pumped up at the last debate at the beginning and then she faded, must have been on something. But the ad they came out with just a couple days before that, they were they were kind of reiterating the stamina issue, her health issue. And there was kind of a, a, a video best hits of her fainting moments. I mean, there wasn't just that 9-11 day, but a couple others. So they were really kind of going with that. And so the fact that he was, I mean, campaign 101 is your stump speech ought to reinforce what you're doing in your ads. And in this case, it did. I mean, there was this moment of message discipline from the Trump campaign. And so I think it was more coordinated than, than I first thought. Well, I think sometimes in these debates, it's a battle of who got more sleep the night before. And, you know, he's known, uh, Ariana Huffington was talking about this. She wrote the Great Sleep Book. And she was talking about this guy only gets three to four hours of sleep. Hillary came out, she was rested, i.e., she had a little bit of energy. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't get you all the way to she must be on drugs. Right, right. I mean, yeah, his energy suggests he seems to be on something because um, he doesn't need much sleep. Speaking of Hillary, of course, she did come to town. Um, we were, for another moment, small moment in time, part of the national conversation, the national ka-ching, election. Ka-ching. Yeah, and I think that's what it was about. Listen, she was making her final stop, her final West Coast swing of the campaign, not going to be out here until after the election again, and was soaking up a bunch of money in California. I think she made about 10 million bucks that day. So I think the thinking was, as long as you're on the West Coast, pretty easy to get up here. She hadn't been here since March. So there was a lot of fundraising that hadn't been done in Washington, a lot of kind of easy money, if you will. So don't leave any money on the table. Well, one visit unlocked a lot. I'm sure she raised well over a million. And it goes to the clear advantage they're pushing. The Clinton campaign is out raising Trump by a ton. He doesn't like fundraising. A lot of the major GOP donors aren't given to him. They're playing in the Senate races instead. So they're pushing the pedal, the Democrats, on this. And, you know, an afternoon in Seattle can raise you enough money to put a bunch of ads on in a place like, say, Arizona, which is which is a state they're trying to put into play. So fundraising is, is an advantage they're pushing. 
Well, I was shaking my head the entire time that she was here because I was wondering, you know, why would you waste? Yes, I understand there are cash registers here. I got that. ATMs plenty, But I couldn't figure out why she would waste this close to the election a whole afternoon or however long it took her to get here and wherever she's going next. Waste all that time in a state where if you count the uh, some earlier polls, and I bet these numbers are going to go up even more, earlier polls in Washington state, Clinton's ahead of of Donald Trump by 16 or 17 points, depending on if you do the two-way race or the or the four-way race. And that's all before all these latest troubles with the uh, with the tape. So I just I just kind of thought it was like, oh my gosh, why are you wasting so much time here? This is not in any way a swing state. Uh, but you know, just referring to those those earlier polls, and I know a bunch of new polls are going to come out this week, but I'll just uh, talk about the earlier one for one sec. So uh, Governor Jay Inslee is ahead of Bill Bryant, the Democrat, ahead of the Republican there. By it was cl- closer in the poll that I looked at by ten points, and I and I sort of have this feeling uh, that it maybe is going to be a little closer by election day. I think so. I mean, a 10-point governor's race would be a landslide. So I I think it's probably more likely to be, you know, a seven, eight-point race. He's certainly the underdog at this point. Um, Tonight, in fact, is the last debate between the two of them over in Pasco. I'm going over there. I'm going to moderate it with Enrique Cerna from here at KCTS 9. Uh, the you are lo- a renaissance man. You are everywhere. I'm getting all over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's going to be a fun one. The The location, Pasco, you know, you would think this would favor Bill Bryant. He did very well over there as a, as a Republican uh, when you look at the primary results. But despite... Despite the fact that it's in red country, if you will, he's still far behind. Uh, Tonight's his last chance to really change the dynamic of this race. As we've said, polls pretty consistently for a year have shown him behind by about 10 points. So he needs a game changer if this is going to change in the next few days. Um, And I don't know how he quite does that. I mean, typically... In your last moments, the way to kind of change something is to go negative. So I expect a pretty aggressive. I've been Bill waiting Bryant for a tonight. Willie Horton style ad based on some of the uh, management slip ups. Yeah, and the early release of prisoners, some of whom it's alleged went out. Uh, well, they did go out and kill. So y- there is a Willie Horton ad in there, but we haven't seen it yet, uh, meaning there's a potential Willie Horton ad. Um, I think he's going to get aggressive tonight. He's been aggressive. Um, it's probably his only chance to 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 get traction. One thing he is coming out and being more aggressive on is this homelessness issue. He's really taken that up. And I, I'd be curious as to your thoughts. He made this surprise appearance in front of the Seattle City Council last week when they were discussing homelessness policy. I thought it was a very brave and probably probably a very smart move. It shows him taking a stand as you know, he was a little slow compared to other Republicans in the state taking a stand on Donald Trump. He eventually did, said he wasn't for Trump. Uh, for a lot of folks in Seattle, it was the right stand. Um, and even even as this is happening, uh, the debate on homelessness at city council may be changing a bit. Some folks are backing off of their earlier, you know, camping sort of on, on all pop public property there. Uh, and so think about it. You know, the city council right now is currently dominated by politically left folks. Uh, but I think the city itself is more like, you know, those those famous sensible Seattleites. So you should ask them if you're not planning to. Far be it for me to tell you what to ask. But I think you should ask them. Uh, 
Why did he think uh, it was a great idea to march into City Hall, not exactly friendly territory to um, Republicans around here? Why did he do that? Well, homelessness may come up tonight, but I don't want to tip tip my hand or the or the debate team's hands about what exactly we're going to ask. Um, I thought it was pretty smart. I mean, here he here he kind of piggybacks on an issue that's getting lots of attention. So why not go in there? I don't know that's going to get him a lot of Seattle votes. Uh, kind of this this pushback he did on 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 city council members who want to be more lenient on homelessness. It was probably more of a play for suburban voters who want to kind of hear someone give a little bit more of a tough love message. Um, and but, also people don't know him. So, he, you know, how many, like you say, how many times is there people going to even hear his name and think good or bad about it, right? And this is why it, it was smart almost no matter what the issue was. I mean, he is fighting a name familiarity problem. You have people that still ask Bill who, I mean, his platform is, as a port commissioner, super low profile. Most people think that it's an, an appointed position when, in <laughs> fact, we elect them in King County. So he's very unknown. So it almost doesn't matter why he gets in the newspaper, <laughs> just being in the paper, which he was because of this testimony he gave, is, is a good day for, for Bill Bryant. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. I still think, of course, this is uh, Jay Inslee's race to lose. Demo you know, we talked about this last week. It, uh, democratic year, great economy, as we were talking about. Uh, so what are you expecting in this race in the end? What do you And, and what do you make of a, of a, I guess it's a rumor, I'm not supposed to trade in rumors, in Olympia, that Jay Inslee, after he's reelected, presumably, could get a national job, something like... Um, EPA administrator or climate change czar or something under a President Clinton and oh I am getting so ahead of myself. Yeah, I mean assuming she gets elected, <laughs> listen, it would it would be a, a reasonable fit for a guy like Jay Ansley who who at the end of the day is motivated by climate issues and so being EPA chief, being being climate czar, it would make sense. Typically, those kind of jobs go to people who have just retired or have just lost an election. So assuming Jay Inslee gets reelected, I think it's still unlikely. You know, Gregoire was rumored for that job when she left office. Gary Locke, of course, became a, a administration official for Obama, first, first Commerce Secretary. But of course, he had retired. They typically like to pluck people who are without a job as opposed to taking someone from a job. So I still think it's unlikely if he gets elected, reelected, that he would go to Washington. I think that's about right. I think that's about right. Let me move on, because I know we just talked about governor. Lieutenant governor. This is a sleepy, often ignored position. Which has something to do with the fact that the, the current guy's been there for, you know, a couple decades. Yeah, we have nine statewide elected officials, all that, that run in the same cycle. So it's it's practically impossible for voters to pay attention to all of them. So as a practical matter, a couple of them sort of rise each election cycle. This one has, and I think your your reason is is the is is right, which is there's been an incumbent in there for 20 years, hasn't really had a competitive race. We haven't had to worry about the lieutenant governor for several years. And now we are, and it's an interesting race, and you got two interesting guys, and so it's getting a lot of attention. Cyrus Habib, the Democrat. Um is is probably in the better position. Uh, he's got more money, that's for sure. Um, but it's interesting. I'm learning things 
about this position I didn't even know. Uh, because What's the most it's, fascinating? Well, the most fascinating is it's basically the vice president of, of, the, of the state. And, you know, so if the, the governor, for some reason, uh, dies or is incapacitated, obviously— well, He has to like, be out of town in Washington, D.C. or well, somewhere Well, that's the like other that. thing. I mean, yeah, obviously, yeah. if they died, this person would become governor. But what I didn't realize was how often they are acting governor. So when, in this case, Jay Inslee is out of town— Trade or otherwise missions, unavailable, this, the current lieutenant governor yeah. has been in this position about a quarter of the time. So one month, one week a month, this person is acting governor. And that makes a difference because emergencies could happen during that time. I mean, you could have a wildfire. You could need to dispatch the National Guard. You could have other kinds of emergencies. And you want someone who actually could be the governor, and in fact, in a lot of cases, is the governor. And also, Cyrus Habib, you know, one thing people have read about him is that he very much wants to be what you would call an activist lieutenant governor. Tell us more about that. Well, and and I moderated a debate between these two, and this did come up, and I would say it's the most it's the most uh, animating difference between the two. So Cyrus Habib says, hey, I'm not just going to preside over the Senate because this is one role of this job is to be the leader of the Senate. I'm going to make decisions that could have more of a consequence. So he's not just going to enforce parliamentary procedure, but he says if the Senate, and he gives this example, passes a budget that he feels is unconstitutional based on the Supreme Court's school decision, which we call the McCleary decision, that he would not sign it and procedurally if the head of the Senate does not sign a bill, it then doesn't get forwarded to the governor. Well, oh, couldn't the governor, oh yeah, couldn't the so, governor come back and say, dude, sign it? No. I mean, this is the power a lieutenant governor has. So he has said very clearly that he would not have signed last year's budget. He thought it was unconstitutional. And, you know, given the track record of the, of the legislature, it's probably unlikely that they'll pass a budget next time around, but he thinks it's constitutional. Now, the difference between he and Marty McClendon is night and day over this. Marty McClendon, the Republican, says, hey, that's not the role of the lieutenant governor as presiding officer of the Senate. My role is to enforce parliamentary procedure, but not enforce constitutional law. So if something is duly passed by that body, I will sign it, I will send it on, and it's for the courts to decide whether it's constitutional or not. So if Cyrus Habib gets elected, we're in for it's, some executive level drama in Washington. We in the finally years to come. need some drama in the <laughs> lieutenant governor's position. Uh, I think a lot of folks do think he's a little bit out in front of his skis, as they like to say about this. Uh, still in this race, just sort of trying to handicap it a little bit. You and I, the Democrat. Cyrus Habib probably has the advantage for the same reason Jay Inslee has the advantage in the governor's race, blue state presidential election cycle. One other interesting thing about this race, I, I, I read somewhere that Cyrus Habib is comparing his race to former Washington Governor Gary Locke's uh, when he won and became the first uh, Chinese-American governor in the country. So Cyrus Habib wants to be the first Iranian-American to hold statewide office in the country. And that would be interesting. And it does tie to the money that you mentioned. The money, the, the last time I looked at the money was about, was more than 10 to 1 here uh, in favor of Cyrus Habib. And some of it was coming from around the country and some of it was coming uh, from Iranian or Iranian how do you say that? Americans, I think you say it both ways. 
Yeah, and he's he's you know Marty McClendon. I mean, I think the last report you're referring to was Cyrus Abib had raised something like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and Marty McClendon was at like thirty five thousand. So I mean, it's not even close. And you're right, a lot of money coming in from from out of the state. Um, he's he's a very active fundraiser. You know, Gavin Newsom, the lieutenant governor of California, was up here fundraising for Cyrus. Abib. He doesn't have so, initiative, enough initiatives on his ballot <laughs> in his state. To, I mean, to Cyrus keep him busy. Cyrus has got some star power that he's tapping into and so he's he's got the clear advantage he's up on tv you know thirty five thousand bucks for marty mcclendon isn't going to get you tv ads or mailers or that kind of stuff so it's going to be a tough race for marty mcclendon so you know what else i'm thinking about today cr i'm thinking about the gender gap in politics here in washington and nationwide what do you what do you think of the gender gap? Do you have any thoughts about well, how that's going mean, to sway the whole business here? It's pretty pronounced. You know, if you look at presidential elections, women typically go for the the Democrat by about ten percentage points. Um, and yes, this but year, the number, yeah, go ahead. This year it could be probably fifteen percent. Well, I saw yesterday on CBS News nineteen percent nationwide, and remember, women are fifty three percent of the electorate in this state. And nationwide. So it's it's huge. Obviously, Trump's, you know, problems with women, to put it generously. He has the problems, um, yes. Or to put it gently, uh, you know, is showing up. Um, and you probably have, you know, I would assume that that, that 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 gap will probably be stretched about as wide here in this state as any state. Women do very well in Washington, and women politicians, women politicians, yeah. women on the ballot. So with Hillary on the ballot, you know, in a year where the gender gap is big, in a state that goes Democratic, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, a, a, you know, unless it's going to be a convincing win in Washington. Whether she can win the whole country, I don't know. I think that's, of course, likely, but she's going to blow it out in Washington. Two two fun facts on on gender politics. One is if the nineteen points holds through the election. That would be the highest in history since folks have been doing exit polls. And I saw something really interesting. I just have to add to this from the Washington Post. Voters with daughters only uh, are much more likely to support Hillary Clinton for president. If you do just have daughters only, it's it's 58 percent support for Clinton. And I think this is going to help. You know, they, they also say you talk to sort of you know, political consultants and stuff in, in Washington. And just being a woman on the ballot can be a, a three or four point advantage. So when we've talked about the Pramila Jayapal, Brady Walkinshaw race for the seventh district, you know, I mean, there's just an advantage to being a woman that's 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 likely to help her and other female candidates. Well, just a thought about that as you say that. So I saw Melania Trump interviewed on, on television and, you know, she was standing by her man there. But it, and I thought this was really personable, but it doesn't help the gender gap. She said, I have two teenage boys at home, meaning her son, who's 10. And, and her husband. And her husband, who's 70. <laughs> so that was kind of fun. But, um, but I think in that climate, that is when voters, men and women, say, well, let's let a woman do it. These teenage boys are not so good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That may backfire, yeah. <laughs> uh, the initiatives, you know, there's several on the ballot. I think it's six or seven, something like that. Um, one big one that a lot of people are talking about, and I'd like your thoughts on it, is Initiative 732. This is the so-called carbon tax. This will be the di first direct carbon tax of any state in the country. And, and certainly we don't have it nationally. So it represents a pretty significant 
proposal, policy leap, if you will. Now, one of the promises of supporters is that this would be revenue neutral. So yes, costs would go up as you put this carbon tax in, including the gas tax. Your, you know, your gas price would go up. But at the same time, the sales tax would be reduced, so it would be kind of a wash. I mean, that's kind of how they're pitching it. But of course, you know, the State Office of Financial Management said, as as, a, as appealing as that might be, that the numbers aren't really revenue neutral. It turns out it's not quite revenue neutral. There's a little, but it's uh, the sort of spirit of it was to try and be revenue neutral. But yes, you'd you'd be fifty, sixty million bucks a year. I think I think underwater, um, but. But the sort of trade-off, if you will, the idea that you sort of raise one tax and lower another is not getting much traction. I mean, what do you make of that? I'll give you one big reason why it's not, and I'm so glad you said that, because I think this is really important, and I don't think anybody is really connecting this for voters. So I see this as sort of this little pea shell game going on around here with voting. So, yes, if voters approved Initiative 732, and, you know, it kind of goes with Washington's self-image to be the carbon tax state. So I, I get that. So if that if they approved it, it would be almost completely unnoticeable if they also, in the same breath in three counties, vote for Sound Transit 3. And here's why. The sales tax under 732 drops 1%. But the sales tax under Sound Transit 3 goes up half a cent. So how are you going to feel that? Are you going to go, oh, I got this awesome uh, tax break. You're not even going to barely notice it. You know, the great thing about 732 for the junkies like us is <laughs> that it's it's this Shakespearean drama behind the scenes because you have this, this fight playing out in the progressive community. They are in knots in this one. It has split them. They tried to come to some agreement about how they wanted to approach, you know, climate policy and carbon policy and initiative, and they couldn't come together. Um, you know, supporters of this measure that finally made the ballot wrote it in this revenue neutral way, I said, uh, as I was saying, raise the carbon tax, lower the sales tax. But the progressives, the more progressive folks didn't like that. And so they have not supported this. Why? Because they want a carbon tax to go to paying for environmental alternatives, energy alternatives, helping low-income communities more that, helping, are, yes. that are that are you know right. more hurt by carbon pollution. They don't want to go to the effort of raising a carbon tax and then just turning around and rebating it back in the sales tax so that it's a wash. They want something done with that. So it is a split in the environmental community that is super interesting for the junkies like us to watch. Right. So only uh, the Audubon Society of the Enviros is backing the carbon tax. So you have I these mean, folks like the Sierra Club and the Washington Conservation Although Motors. they had a big fight within yeah, the Sierra Club, yeah. but too. But all those are basically not on board. Right. And so what you have is a funny thing where you have these all these environmentalists kind of jumping around and saying, you know, yeah, yeah, we love a carbon tax. Oh, my, we love carbon. Just don't vote for this one. Wait for ours. And I don't know when theirs would be. <laughs> Uh, you know, and even our governor, Jay Inslee, is not on board this. And that's the problem is that the folks that were pushing this carbon Washington kept saying, you know, OK, you don't like this, but but what are you going to do? I mean, they didn't trust that, that the that the 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 regular economic eco kind of a community would would actually put something on the ballot. One interesting thing about this is that it's modeled on a British Columbia 
carbon tax policy, which is basically revenue neutral up there and was pretty popular. And the whole theory behind this is that you could win moderate support, which is tough on climate issues. Oh, yeah. If you make it revenue neutral so that you you could sort of get more Republican support, more business support, if they knew you weren't just sort of creating more government programs with the revenue, that you were rebating it back. But the problem here, unlike British Columbia, is that that they didn't really ever win moderate support, even though they thought they would. And in the meantime, they lost progressive support. So they kind of had the worst of both, which makes this an unlikely thing to pass. I think it's going to be a hard one. I think whenever something is this confusing, and I had these folks on Civic Cocktail earlier this month, I think when you have something this confusing, and it wasn't polling that high anyway, it was, I think in the poll that I saw, it was in the high 50s, which as a debate rolls on, is really not enough to carry you through the election sometimes. Well, I'm not sure which poll you're thinking of. The last one I saw was, it was sort of like 34 yes, 34 no, and a ton of undecideds. Yeah, the undecideds, and you know, if in doubt, they they frequently, not always, but they frequently So it's in a vote. tough position. It's it is in a tough, in a tough position. position. I'll just do one asterisk to it, and it's something we talk about, and we're not going to go too deep on this. But in the 7th Congressional District, voters have been trying to figure out, you know, this is Pramila Jaya, Paul and Brady Walkinshaw. Thank you. Voters have been trying to figure out, you know, what is the difference between these folks? And this is one that that has become a difference between them. So Brady Walkinshaw has, a, you know, supported now Initiative 732, the carbon tax. And Pramila is with that group. Pramila Jayapal is with the group that's waiting for something that uh, they like better. Yeah, they want a carbon tax that raises money, doesn't just turn around and give the money away. The other initiative that's getting a ton of attention. We've talked about it a little bit, but it's worth bringing up again because because it is it is pretty controversial in a lot of sector, sectors, which is this raising of the minimum wage to $13.50. Um, what is your take on it? To me, it looks like this has a pretty good chance. Oh, okay. So it has, it has enough money behind it, and it has enough sort of natural popularity. So, you know, they didn't go for the gusto on this. They could have said $15 an hour statewide. They didn't. They claim they, they compromised. It. They claim they compromised at $13.50. And what I've done is I've looked around the country. You know, these measures are often in, in initiative states. These are on the ballot. And I'm talking about blue, purple, and red states. And they tend to pass. Now, in some of the red states, to be fair, uh, they have passed, but they they weren't as big of Not an this increase. High. But Not you're this right. High. I think like South Dakota. I think Alaska. Yes, I, mean, I think there's some of those yeah. kinds of states, and you're like, what? They passed the minimum wage, so you have to realize that this has just got national pop. Popularity. Everybody wants a raise. There's a populism yeah. to the minimum wage. It's not just a leftist issue. It's kind of a populist folks who feel like they've been left behind. Uh, a lot of those folks are, are Trump supporters that, that like this kind of thing. What strikes me is if you talk about other states. One interesting kind of example is Oregon, our neighbor to the south. So they recently hiked the minimum wage. And they did it in a in a in a different way than I've seen in any other states. They did a three tiered system. So the talk whole, about a head scratcher. Yeah, <laughs> but it, there's some appeal to that. So yeah. it, it got hiked everywhere, but but it got hiked kind of lowest in the rural areas, a little bit higher in the suburban areas, and highest in Metro Portland to kind of recognize that there are different 
economies, different costs of livings in different parts of the state. So I think by 2020, it's like 11.50 in the rural areas, I see. 12 bucks suburban, and I think 13.25 in Metro Portland. So Bill Bryan, actually the Republican candidate here, is basically against our measure, but says we ought to do something more like Oregon, which recognizes that there are real regional differences. I mean, the cost of living in Seattle is just factually higher than OMAC, for instance. Well, my question about Bill Bryant saying that is I'm just wondering, I'm just asking, and this could maybe come up in your debate, um, is that a way to say, really, I'm not, because there is no minimum wage proposal in Washington that looks like that. So is that just a way to say, I'm not for it, but I don't want to aggravate all the people who are for it. So I'll just say that if you'd made it different, I mean, we do that a lot with initiatives around here because they're fixed. Oh, if you fixed it this way, uh, maybe I would jump on board. I, I think there's certainly something to that. Listen, we know this is this is really popular. I think the last poll was like 60%. So unless something dramatic happens, this will win. So Bill Bryant recognizes that. He can see the polls. So it's his way of, of, of opposing the initiative, but sounding like he's got a reasonable alternative. But you're right. I mean, the business community, which doesn't like this, guys like Bill Bryant that want something different. I mean, this has been talked about in Olympia, but, but, but they... The business community had a chance to kind of come together with these folks and, and kind of come to a compromise, and they didn't. And I'm, and, I'm really and, glad you said that because, as you know, the legislature a couple of times had a chance to get in front of this at $12 at lower amounts. And folks like Bill Bryant, he's a port commissioner, so not fair to say he was in the legislature at the time, certainly not. But folks like Bill Bryant had a chance if they wanted to to do something and you know there's always the threat of initiative in the state of Washington and especially when there's money behind yeah, the Yeah, I mean Bill Bryant did 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 vote for some raises uh, of the minimum wage as a port commission dealing with 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 port workers and that kind of stuff. So I want to be fair about that. But the business community which is kind of the the group opposing this, they had their chance in Olympia and and you're right, they didn't they didn't really play ball and so they they kind of hoped it would go away and it came back in an initiative higher than they would have liked and and they're probably now regretting that. And they're probably regretting it because if it passes then it's it's sort of more than they nothing they can do. More than they bargained for. So CR so fun. Thanks. As always. As always. <laughs> so thank you all for listening to the analysts. I'm Joni Balter. He is CR Douglas and we are the analysts. Thanks for listening. To hear more podcasts from KCTS9 Digital Studios Visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.